Welcome to episode 56 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment podcast. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Eddie Kramer and Chris Lee. We're a ragtag bunch of wannabe machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop and topics in making. Gentlemen, it's nice to have both of you here. How are you doing? I'm back, baby. (laughs) (laughs) We've missed you. (laughs) Yeah, doing good here. Um, yeah, sorry. I missed the last episode. I was, uh, had a kind of a rush job that came in that weekend. So I appreciate you guys, uh, rounding up Sammy for a quick guest spot. That was a pretty good idea. Yeah. It was no trouble at all. Yeah. Worked out great. Chris, how are you doing? Uh, doing good. Um, working on the UMC still, uh, got a new puppy and work still going good. So can't complain. Oh, you know, as if uh, you didn't need another thing to uh, take up more of your time. <laughs> right. <laughs> the The puppy thing has been on my radar since I was like 10 years old. So it's uh, it was a long time in the making. Nice. <laughs> so what, what's made more mess so far, the puppy or the hoss? <laughs> the puppy. <laughs> <laughs> I was watching. I can't remember who posted it. Um it's on the Discord channel. Like I, someone got a VF6, and they were kind of talking about how the sheet metal leaks <laughs> coolant in certain places. Mm. But uh, I guess you know that's such a big machine. When you think about like tolerance on sheet metal, you know, if you're allowed to have like plus or minus a little, you know, some percentage of the overall sheet size, it's still a pretty big gap on a machine that big. It's kind of funny. I've been concerned about it, but I haven't seen anything yet. So maybe I got lucky because I haven't had any issues. That I've seen other people have, so knocking on wood here. Yeah, it wasn't a big. It wasn't like leaking out of the machine. I think it was just leaking into like one of the way covers. Um, don't know if it was causing a problem. It was just kind of an observation. But he was kind of. I was looking at the gap. You know, he's showing a picture of the the sheet metal that should have been the budding, and it was kind of. You know, could almost stick a finger in between it. But that's how you got uh, new work holding, right? For the Haas. Yeah, we we got the. Uh, like the dovetail cutter and some of the dovetail vices from fifth axis. Uh, Cause uh, I finally finished all their wheels and we're moving on to triple tree production and R and D of the intake. So we're kind of double whamming at the same time right now, but that's why we ended up getting the um, dovetails just to help us do the, the triple trees in one, one stop pretty much. And also to give us more accessibility uh, for the intake as well. So as you, um, machine the dovetail into stock yet there's a special tool from uh fifth axis for that right yeah we, we bought we, we bought it because i i didn't want I, you probably don't need it but we just bought it for convenience um yeah and i set up these te- like a template infusion it's a little janky but it works but basically like i can type in any stock number and i can type in the width of the dovetail itself that i want and it'll auto generate the stock but it, i also have uh toolpath set up for like half inch dovetail one inch two inch, so i could just hit control g and then it'll just pop up and i can post it pretty quickly and then we've saved those in the machine so now every time we have to like prep uh dovetail stock we we know we put this vice in you you bank it up to the edge and then you just run the program depending on what thickness of dovetail you want and then it'll automatically do it so we kind of have we're trying to automate as much of it as we can to make it easy is the dovetail geometry itself like, how tall is it from the floor of the stock? I think it's like ninety thousands. How uh, deep is the crap? Like, I, it's not that deep. I'd say like a hundred thousands ish, maybe a little bit more. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm just trying. To, I'm trying to figure out. Like, I'm tempted to try to get like a small uh, dovetail fixture on the fourth axis. Mm-hmm. Like that seems like a really good way to hold stock on that, uh, where I get a lot of clearance yeah. on the backside of the stock, closer to the. Uh, the spindle housing and um but i just don't know like all the tools i see like from fifth axis to machine the dovetail won't fit in the neo spindle they're like half inch or the shank size is too big and i'm kind of wondering like is that just i mean is that like could i get a smaller tool made or is that dovetail just like too big to cut i don't know they're I think their dovetail would be too big to cut, but you don't need okay. their stuff though. Honestly, like if you just got a regular dovetail cutter, it'd probably work. The only thing is their dovetail cutter at the end has a radius so that it's not like a right. sharp corner. But honestly, if you just took like 
an old carbide tool and you just kind of, it's like a mold maker trick where you sit there and you can kind of like round off the edge of the, of the dovetail with another carbide tool that maybe is like broken or something. And then you can kind of, you can form shape it with your hand and like in 30 seconds you'll have a radius. Okay. Yeah. I kind of got the impression that tool was really just for speed. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to just plow through something. Yeah. yeah, But not necessarily a proprietary geometry or anything. No. And they, they have a PDF, which gives you like their dimensions and everything like that. Oh, okay. So if you wanted to get a form tool made, you you could pretty easily get one for like a hundred bucks probably. Cool. Yeah. I'll see if if they're at least the dovetail, if like one of the Daytron dovetail cutters can make that size. Yeah. Just, it depends on how deep it is. Like I think the largest dovetail, and the catalog was like one, say like one, maybe 1.5 millimeters of flute reach site, you know, horizontal reach. Yeah. I, I can send you a link. I, I have all that stuff saved somewhere. Okay, cool. Yeah. But, um, so yeah, so that's the night shop or the UMC shop. Um, the, the day job was kind of interesting. I was going to ask you guys, like you guys know everything that I went through to change careers and get to where I was. And then when I started this new company, uh, you know, I got put on the water jet cause it was kind of like the new thing and they needed someone to program. And then I got put on the lathe cause they didn't have anybody to program lathes. And then two months or so passed. And I started to realize like, Hey, this isn't really something the water just, it was enjoyable to learn, but it's not something that I'm passionate about. Like the, something about the lack of tolerance was kind of uh, uninteresting to me. It was more like a like a a rough sword, and I want like a fine tooth surgical entry type thing. And I kind of struggle with this because the job is great. I love the people that I work with. Uh, I love the management there and the things that they're doing. And there's definitely room for growth. But then I was doing something that like I half loved because the lathe was actually kind of cool because I never had an opportunity. But the water jet thing got kind of boring because as soon as I figured out how to like do things. It just got like kind of kind of lame in my eyes, right? Because I'm I want something like a little bit more challenging in the sense of tolerance and things like that. So I wasn't sure how to approach this. So I met. Would you guys be brave enough? Because I haven't even been there for three months. But basically, I pulled my my manager aside. I said, and before I did this, I thought, okay, me bringing this up could be the end of something really good. So I have to be prepared to leave. And then there was a moment that I was scared to, but then I thought. I didn't do everything I did to get here just to be scared to lose this job because I'm being honest with myself. Like if I tell them that this is something that I'm not into, but I'll do it because I know we need to. But if the opportunity arises to train someone else, I'd love to take that and and kind of train someone to take over. If I'm not able to say that, then I got complacent and I don't want to be. So I actually pulled them aside. Like I was scared, but I did it because I knew, look, the worst thing that could happen is I, is I ruin the relationship or whatever. And I, let's say I leave, then I'll just end up finding something else somewhere else. And I was confident that like, I'd be able to, you know, find another place doing something that I truly love, like all everything. And so I told him and he was actually pretty understanding about it. He's like, okay, I get it. And give us some time to figure out what we're going to do. And then literally like, I think five weeks later today, he pulled me inside and said, okay, look, uh, we, we found another person who's going to take over the water jet. And then, so we'll just have you program the Doosan lathe and then you do some horizontal and the five axis. So you're basically the Doosan guy now. And I said, that's perfect. Like totally happy with that. And it made me realize had I not said anything, I'd probably be stuck with that water jet job being unhappy for, I don't know how many months until I got the courage to say it again. And it took for me to remember that I have, I have nothing to lose because I already took the hardest risk before. But would you guys have done that? Or I don't know I, what was the best. Maybe I just got lucky, to be honest. Like maybe it was too early to say something at a new job when you haven't even passed probation and start making demands. But I was curious as to what your guys' opinion was. Well, I'd say you probably, I, I highly doubt you framed it as a demand. I'm sure it was more like a career development discussion, right? Yeah. Kind of positive discussion. Um, sounds like you offered to make sure they wouldn't be in a bind. It's more like just letting them know, I assume letting them know where your interests lie. Right. And, you know, letting them kind of figure out what to do with you next. I mean, you know, cause like the worst that could happen is, Hey, Chris, we got a guy to take over the water jet. Um, and we're going to put you on the bandsaw. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Congratulations! <laughs> Let us know if there's anything else we can do for you. Yeah, the highest but, uh, paid bandsaw operator that ever lived. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, no, I, I framed it as in, hey, look, I know the company needs you right now, and I'm gonna I want to make sure I'm there for you guys. It's just that the water jet yeah. is not something that I'm passionate about, and I got to be honest because I I didn't leave everything behind for this just to not be truthful. And I said, yeah. you know, well, I'm, think- I'm here. I'm just if if there ever is a chance, right? If somebody wants to learn, we I can train someone to take over. I'd love to do that because I'm here for five axis only and lesser extent the do sunlight because it's, it's still pretty yeah. fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you're basically, you know, telling them where you think the value of having you on the payroll yeah. um, is maximized, right? And it sounds like it's helping them with the, the more complex work. So yeah. yeah, I think that sounds like a pretty healthy approach and sounds like it worked out. Okay. Yeah. It, it worked out luckily. Um, and then, so now I'm like ecstatic because I get to play with literally the three newest toys that have been bought for the company, like <laughs> the Deuce on five axis, the Deuce on horizontal, and then the Deuce on lathe. And so that's, uh, that's good. Just out of curiosity, is it kind of a com- pretty competitive environment there? It's like everyone kind of clamoring to work with the hottest stuff or like a lot of companies, I think, or a lot of, you know, just human nature, right? People get complacent and they actually like doing what they do and, don't like the change. Like sometimes that can work to your advantage if you're the guy that, you know, the go getter that likes to go play around with the new stuff. Yeah. But, uh, I think at our company, well, the guy that's been there longer than me that has, I guess, seniority, he's, he's happy doing what he does. And he, he knows that he even said like, I'm not here to learn new stuff. I'm already like 40 plus, you know, almost 50 years old. So like, yeah. I'm the only guy that's always like, Hey, let, let me learn that. Let me do, I'll, I'll take care of this. Like, give me that job. You know, like everyone else is more, like you said, like a complacent in a sense, they're not asking for new, to learn new things. I'm kind of the guy that's like, I'll go out there and just learn it through, through, through the operator or I'll go figure something out. Cause like yeah. unintentionally I've learned how to use most of the machines there. Like even not in our department, like I learned how to use the, the gunner machine. It's basically like a vinyl plotter, but it cuts like fabric and stuff. Like I spent 10 minutes in there on my break talking to the guy and he showed me how to use it and it was pretty easy. So um, I'm always like there. I'm always making it known like, hey, I want to learn this. Hey, let me, let me let me give me that book. I'll, I'll Let me figure this out and then I'll do it like on my own time and kind of thing. So um, yeah, they've been ha- – my, my manager loves me. I mean, he and I get along real great. So Back when I had my day job and I was in a position where I was doing a lot of hiring – um, that kind of attitude is exactly what we we were typically looking for. It's hard to find, you know, somebody that's kind of always motivated to learn and, you know, basically open to doing whatever you ask them to do, uh, as long as you're kind of moving their career forward. So that's I'd say you've got a pretty healthy attitude and approach to uh, the new job. Yeah, I'm going to agree with that because I come from a background where it is the exact opposite. Um, at least the the corner of government life that I saw was super full of complacency like people there there's a large fraction of them who are lifers who are going to be with the government until they retire and uh there's just there's also not a lot of room to craft your own career path uh i mean the the roles in the government the organizations they're pretty rigid uh you can't uh like try and say like oh i want to be the person who does this this and this like you can't it's not a buffet line where you can pick and choose which aspects of your job like you get to play with mm-hmm. um and like for me i was almost ready to fall into that uh, that track of hey you know like this isn't like the perfect career but it's cozy so i'll kind of just stay with it for a while and it wasn't until like i started finding something that interested me even more that I was like, Hey, wait, let me take a step back. How can I, how can I change the trajectory of my career? And, and luckily this opportunity with carbide 3d came about. Um, but until you say something or until you take a step to try and change that, nothing's going to change. If you hadn't spoken to your manager, he would never have known to try and hire another person to fill that spot, to give you an opportunity to move somewhere else or he wouldn't have been looking for another place to stick you. Um, so, like, if if you want change, you have to take some action. And so, for that, I totally commend you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's nobody else responsible for your career. That's your job. <laughs> you know what I mean? You, like, you can't just wait around for them to notice that you're great and <laughs> yeah. you up, right? So, yeah, and I... <laughs> I, I was I was scared to say something, you know, because like I said, it hasn't even been 30 days yet. And I, I thought like maybe it's too soon to say something. But 
I was just like, man, I, I've done way, I've given up a lot to be here. And if I'm not happy doing the thing that I want to do, then I need to be prepared to leave, even no matter how good the job is or whatever, right? How good they pay or how good the location is or the people. It's like, I can't ever let anything get in the way of like the true goal, I guess, of what I'm trying to accomplish. So, and, and, and even in these last couple of months that I knew, I had no idea that he was going to say that. So I was prepared to weather the storm for like the end of the year, but I w- it would have made me, I would have gotten pretty bored because we've gotten the water jet streamlined pretty easily now. And it just, it would have been less eventful. The only thing that's been keeping me pretty excited is like the do sunlight is like all the live tooling stuff and figuring out that has been pretty interesting. So that's kind of keeping me afloat. How about you and Sin look like you've been pretty busy. Uh, I have been busy and it's, I keep saying I see the light at the end of the tunnel <laughs> and that light keeps getting kicked down the road. Um, but it's, it's a kind of a good thing. Um, in some ways, uh, the delays in sort of <clears throat> wrapping up the nomad, getting the drawings 100% signed off ready for production has also given us a chance to sort of look at some aspects of the machine, um, and being like, you know, like it would have been okay if we shipped it now, but since we got an extra week, what if we revisit this aspect of the machine, this uh, performance characteristic, like RPM of the spindle? Uh, let's let's try just kicking it up a little bit. Let's take that like I wish we'd done just a little bit more, like like for that machine, and actually addressed it in the interim. Um, so I think that Nomad's going to be much better for. Um, all the delays and so in that regard like I'm actually really happy like we're not I I didn't want to wrap up the Nomad and ship it with a couple stones left unturned so um, that and the fact that just for the longest time sort of like you Chris like I've been on this career trajectory that was hey I'm gonna make some videos I will work with the existing machines where in the back of my head I was always like I, I want to like contribute a little more. I want to actually exercise a little bit of that um, education that I invested in. Um, and so being able to design the enclosure for the Nomad and contribute to some of the other uh, aspects of the design. Um, one of the, well, actually the spindle pulleys I've had a little bit of influence on. Um, so it's actually like being able to participate in the, uh, like bringing a new machine to market has actually been a lot of fun. Um, so there's that. Um, and then there's there's a couple other little um, parts of this, this machine that we're going to try and machine in-house, and I'm able to sort of influence that a little bit. Uh, I can, um, Rob told me I could start uh, developing some prototype tool paths. Um, so slowly, um, like I've always wanted to sort of get my foot in the door for like working on some of the bigger machines, even though we have a full-time machinist on staff, um, which never really gave me an opening to run the machine. There was never an urgency like, hey, like we need these parts now. Like um, Jerry is busy. Can you jump on a machine? Like that was never going to happen. Um, but now because of the fact that I'm, I'm brought into the, uh, the R&D process, um, there was a, one of the pulleys for the Nomad I prototyped on the Pocket NC, and there's a couple of other parts that now that uh, I might be able to uh, maybe make some tool pads for for a big machine. Um, it's it's overall a lot more exciting. I'm feeling more optimistic about where I am. I'm having less of that urge of like, man, if like Carbide 3D doesn't give me like access to a more powerful machine by the end of the year, I'm gonna go mm-hmm. buy my own Daytron or something. Like <laughs> that urge has been slightly satiated for now. Um, so. Yeah, things are looking up. I think. I, I think. Go ahead, Chris. Oh, I I think like it's it's you're putting in a ton of work right now. But just imagine when you're all done and these things go to market, like people are going to be enjoying your your design and your thoughts and your, your hard work poured into this machine. It's a product that's going to live on, you know, beyond you and stuff. I think that's a pretty amazing. It's one thing that we, we make stuff in our garage for ourselves is another when you make something for someone else and they can learn and educate themselves on the thing that you love as much as they do and stuff. So I, I think that feeling is going to be coming pretty soon when you guys get this all done, but it's going to be uh, worth all the trouble you're going through right now. Yeah, it's, it's kind of cool because 
when you machine a part, if you're a job shop, you can take a little bit of pride in what you've produced, but very rarely do you get to see where that fits in the grand scheme of things. I remember uh, back in the government days, like you make a part, uh, you design something, you send it out, that small part goes into something that you're never ever going to see again. And doing product design for things that are going to go out to consumers, uh, everyday hobby machinists, woodworkers, uh, it's something that you're actually going to see in the wild. And uh, every time you look at that, you can take just a little bit of, of pride in what you've accomplished. So um, fingers crossed that this launch goes off uh, hopefully next month. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait to see what Vince does to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we have a pretty good idea of where he's going to go. It's going to be yeah. uh, ball screws, NEMA 23, and a big ass spindle. <laughs> yeah, he'll probably get he'll probably get ATC working on it <laughs> somehow. Very cool. Yeah, yeah I've been, there is uh, a way he could do that. <laughs> so I don't know if you can. Have you guys shown much of it on social media? I yeah, have right. revealed the chassis of it, which is pretty similar to the old Nomad. That's um, what I was curious but about. But the overall shape, form factor, and some of the little nice-to-have bits are, uh, I'm thinking end of the month. We can at least do a visual reveal. Um, oh, okay. The, the enclosure is sort of where they handed it off to me. Um, Rob got the structure, the aluminum uh, to a place where he likes liked it, um, and then he went off to do a coating sabbatical. He does this every now and then. He'll just leave for a, a week or two and hole himself away in either a coffee shop or a bar, I'm not quite sure, <laughs> and just work on Carbide Motion, Carbide Create, and other software-related stuff. And so right before one of those, he was like, here's the structure of the machine. Like, skin it. Like, put it together, put some bamboo plywood walls on it, uh, design like the cover the, the back everything visually aesthetic around the frame um, and so it was kind of a fun uh, I wouldn't say it's a design challenge um, because I kind of wanted to keep it safe like you know what a nomad looks like I wanted to sort of keep some DNA uh, consistent across that so it doesn't look like a radically different machine um, but it's definitely visually different um, from the uh, old nomad um, but okay. it's it for me it was an open canvas like I could uh, figure out like how do I design this side panel um, what are the proportions of it um, and I was also t having a little fun making this parametric so I could say how much uh, overhang for the the side panels do I want in front behind how tall do I want it to be I don't know if there's a window in this side how big should it be where should it be positioned and so uh, it was it was a fun design challenge just for me to sink my teeth into um, with surprisingly little oversight. Um, I went to Home Depot, I bought a sheet of half-inch plywood, I cut it out on the CNC router, and I put it on the machine, and I was like, what do you think? And they're like, yeah, mm, it, <laughs> maybe you should change that uh, fillet to a, a large chamfer or something. Um, but for the most part, they just they let me iterate through this however I want. Um, I did get to put a window on the side, um, and uh, yeah, it, it's just, they they let me run loose with it, um, and it's the opposite of the government, where you go through multiple layers of, like, show it to your supervisor, he shows it to, like, the, the division, and everything just slowly ladders its way up to the top, and every now and then you get some feedback. Um, this was just me with the Master Fusion model uh deciding what to do with it um so yeah it's interesting it's fun um and uh hopefully i get to do some more of this in the future we'll see yeah that window so it is, sounds like uh, it, at least it's a little more uh even more video friendly than it was before as far as uh yeah different uh, video video wasn't the intent of this um i'm pretty sure most people know that there's a window on it now but my biggest gripe with the oh one of several gripes, but one of my persistent gripes with the old Nomad was that it's very easy to visually line something up uh, in the x-axis along like the right or left side of the part. You sort of just jog the end mill and line it up so it's over the left or right edge. 
Um, but when you're trying to align a part uh, in the Y direction, either the front or back edge of a part, you can't look down the side yeah. of the CNC and line it up with the front edge or the back edge unless you sort of jog the spindle all the way over to the side and you shove your head into the enclosure and you look across the part. There's really no good way to, uh, well, I guess you could use a mirror, like a, a dental mirror or just a small handheld mirror, uh, just to look perpendicular uh, across the end mill, across the x-axis. So just having a little viewport allowing you to look um, across the spindle parallel to the x-axis uh, is just going to make it so much easier to uh, just find your, your corner properly where you, where you would set your origin. Yep. That'd yeah. actually probably be a pretty good place to bring in some lighting for video too. Like, uh, yeah, that's true. You could get a big uh, LED panel and just shine it in and get yeah. some good lighting from the side. Yeah, that window's going to be clutch. <laughs> yep. Speaking of uh, video and machines, so like on the Neo, I'm s so the I love that it has a huge like polycarbonate. It's like pretty much the whole door is see through, right? So it's pretty cool. Or the lid, I guess it's more like a lid than a door. Um, the downside is that it gets cloudy because it's getting nailed by chips all the time, right on the inside. So it kind of has a shelf life. <laughs> um, like for using the machine, it's fine. It doesn't really interfere fear with interoperability but if you're a guy that shoots always trying to shoot video through the the door it's like you gotta find like i'm getting less and less clear spots where i can shoot good video probably <laughs> if you, anyone's noticed my instagram post you probably notice like i'm either shooting from a really weird angle or it's kind of milky <laughs> so like the video quality is kind of going down a little bit so uh yeah i've been talking to them about uh replacing it it is a user replaceable part but um but it's kind of a funky shape like it's, I would prefer to be able to like source it locally because you know, normally it's just like a formed piece of plexiglass, but it's got a pretty big radius in it. So I don't know. And it's safety. It's a safety thing. So probably would stick with getting it from Daytron, but, um, is it like, yes. is it causing, is it just like the chips are hitting it and it's actually like kind of creating these little dimples in the plexiglass? Not even that. It just, it just gets a little cloudy. It's not like optically pure. Do, do you know what works anymore. really well is, uh, I have, I forget the name, but there's like this the spray. headlight restore. <laughs> uh, that, I guess that's one way, but there's another spray that I get and it's basically got a little bit of like grit inside of it and it basically oh. polishes the surface again. And we use it for our paintball yeah. masks. So our yeah. paintball masks, gets, they get hit, right, with like paintballs and dust all the time, and it gets unclear, and you basically spray it. It's got a little bit of fine grit in it, and as you as you rub it out with a microfiber towel, it polishes the lens clear again. We do this every day. I'd love to try that. I think it's how the headlight, you know what I'm talking about? Like yeah, the, the headlight is like more, I guess, it it's more intense because like it's actual like grit, and then you just like rub it on. This thing is like, it's just like a spray. But it's got okay. fine, fine inside of the spray, and it just works really well. I, it's a really old can that I've, we've had in our paintball bag, but my buddy has my bag right now. So when I when I see him this weekend, I'll I'll, I'll text you the name. That'd be great. There's also yeah, the uh, I think the Novus plastic polishing kit. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's similar to the Headlight Restore stuff, but it's specifically meant for like just any like I've seen it used even on uh, like epoxy or uh, any other indoor plastics that you want to defog. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, I was trying to figure out like if I replace it, if I'd put like um like a film on the inside, you know, kind of like a screen protector. But uh, I was talking to some Datron guys. I guess they've tried that, and I mean the chips are coming off pretty hard off the cutter, and they they actually stick. Like if you do something like a clear bra, like I was looking at that, I can't remember the name of the polyurethane film, like you'd use on a clear bra on a car. It's actually pretty yeah. durable stuff, self healing, but. It's soft enough that it would just end up, <laughs> you just end up with chips stuck in the bottom of it. I'm, I'm imagining like a Formula One car where they like rip the lens off their face shield. You just have like 10 of these on the Neo. Tear offs. You yeah. just tearing them off. Yeah. You see them a lot on uh, subway cars in New York City. Um, it's just like they, they stack these up. They just put on like three or five at a time. And just every couple months, they'll just peel one of them off and reset the, uh, the grime factor on the inside <laughs> of the windows. <laughs> Yeah, so that's um, that's kind of going on my machine budget or machine maintenance budget, and then I think the machine's been running really good lately. Uh, no issues with it. But um, how has uh, have you run into issues with glare or any 
troubles, difficulties? Have you started doing things like turning off the lights in the shop while you try and record? Yeah, so the the milkiness on the window that I was talking about kind of increases the glare. So they kind of go hand in hand. Um, when it was brand new, like I didn't have too big a glare problem. I could, depending on the angle I wanted to shoot from, I would turn off. There's like a one LED panel on my ceiling, like right over the machine, right over the door. I can turn that off and sometimes get better video. Um, and the other two are kind of backlighting the machine, which works pretty good for video. But now it's like the biggest source or the biggest un video unfriendly feature on the Neo is the internal LED light. So I'm probably got, you know, the one that comes built into the machine. It just puts a lot of the angle. It's kind of towards the back of the interior. And it, if you're, you're usually doing like shiny aluminum on that machine. So it's like, just, it just whites out the, it's like puts a lot of glare on the material. So, uh, I'm probably gonna do something to put a diffuser on that or, um, maybe just kind of bounce it back to the back and maybe even add different lighting in there. I haven't really played around with it. I mean, you know, it's, it's more of a tool, right. To get work done. So the video is kind of a secondary thing, but, um, but like to me, the video is not just about having something to post on Instagram. I do a lot of the video really more for going back and looking at it, especially if something goes wrong in the cut or I want to make a change. It's like, it's good analysis, right. To be able to see, cause a lot of times when I'm actually running the machine, I'm paying attention to different things might miss something. Um, so yeah, the video is pretty good. Second set of eyes. So it, it is kind of important that I be able to get good clarity on the video. So normally though, uh, if you, if you diffuse the light, the light sounds bright enough where you're still probably going to get pretty good coverage. It just won't be so harsh in like certain spots. Yeah. Rather. So I think right now it's, it's literally like a LED, you know, those tape strips yeah. of LEDs yeah. with no diffuser, super bright. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, that's the problem. It's just like a raw strip up there on Amazon. And, they sell these diffuser stickers and you can basically just ooh. tape them over the LEDs. And then if it's not enough, you just tape another one on and you just keep taping yeah. as many as you need. And then it'll diffuse. It looks pretty good, but you, you might have to put a couple on there. Okay. Yeah. I, I had this 3d printed design. Now you took all the fun out of it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that sounds a lot more practical. It'll probably s s hold up better uh, in that high ethanol environment too. It's cheap too. So if it doesn't work, it's like five bucks or something. But yeah. if it does work, then it solves your problem. Yeah. I mean, the lighting's great for working in the machine. You know, as an operator, that you know, you want as much light as possible. It's, it's only an issue for video. Yeah. But um yeah. Is there so, any room in the enclosure to, to maybe put lights from oh, to yeah. come in from the side? Yeah. Yeah, there's actually a lot of room in there, um, especially the back half of the machine. Like, it's all kind of open area, like right behind the gantry. Um, mm -hmm. I think I could get some lighting back there. It's, it's The architecture looks a lot like the Nomad, <laughs> really. Like, if you just look at the frame, mm -hmm. um, like take off the skin, the frames, it looks a lot like the Nomad. As far so what as, you're uh, saying is we need to build a Nomad that's like four times bigger and four times faster, and we'll have a Neo. <laughs> yeah, switch over to polymer concrete. Uh, a solid <laughs> machine. Um, yeah, so what else have I been doing? On the, yeah, so a couple of things. Um, I, I've been trying to, like ever since I started, kind of find the what's the right mix of work for me. I think you guys know I love doing prototyping work, and that's kind of what I was focused on. Um, that kind of drove the drove me to buy the Neo, both my own, you know, prototyping of my own stuff and taking on prototyping work uh, for third parties. So th that work is great. It's like, to me, the most interesting work um, that I do, but it's like, from a business perspective, it's difficult to like rely hundred percent on prototyping work because it's, it's very lumpy, right? It's, you know, you may get nothing for a few weeks and all of a sudden you've got a bunch of rush. It's usually rush, like prototyping stuff, it's usually rush job. You know, you may get a whole bunch of hits right at, at once. And uh, so scheduling is difficult. Predicting cash flow is difficult at that. So I've always wanted to, like, kind of mix in some recurring, like, non-prototyping work. Recurring work that's still relatively low volume but um, predictable, right? So I kind of can count on this, you know, pretty good idea of how much, like, what my minimum income will be per month for the, or with really what the NEO's income will be per month. And uh, so I think, you know, I've got a new client that's uh, looks like it's going to work out pretty good. It's going to be sending me 
uh, it's long running work too. That's what I like. It's not a lot of parts, but each part runs for quite a while. So it's kind of like the Neo is kind of like the kid. If you give them, you know, small kids, you give them the iPad and it just keeps them busy for a few hours. So you can do other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's how this work is. It's like, I give it to the Neo and, and, uh, it's repet like it's repetitive. So like once I test out like one part of that part, and then it's going to repeat it like throughout the plate. So I, I can poof it pretty quickly and just let it run on the other, uh, you know, basically just repeat that feature over and over on a large plate. So I'm trying not to give away too much of what I'm doing here, but, um, but yeah, so that this, I think the frequency of work from this new client and, uh, you know, basically the duration of the work, it's not like I have to go out and change parts on the machine every two minutes. Like that's not really the kind of recurring work I'm looking for at this point. Um, this is probably gonna work out pretty good. So, and it's, there's enough room in there to, you know, to continue to squeeze in, uh, like prototyping work when it comes in. And if it's higher priority, I can probably, you know, stop this, go do that for a few hours, ship that part and then come back and resume this work. Cause it's kind of long, like this long running work. So, uh, with the probing, it's so easy to you know, do that, take the part off and come back and put it back on reprobe and keep going. So, um, yeah, I've been pretty happy about that. It's kind of new, so we'll see where it goes, but it's looking pretty promising. In terms of, uh, in terms of your sort of business outlook, is it viable for you to just keep getting, uh, like just more and more noticed in the sort of prototyping world to the point where you have to start turning away jobs and then that would sort of guarantee that you're always at like a hundred percent utilization? I don't know if you could get enough like predictable work doing prototyping. I think you the issue with the prototyping is like I said, you know, a lot of times it's rush or at least my clients are typically pretty rush on that and it's unpredictable and that you're always programming apart from scratch. Right. And you're making a few of them and then you're moving on. It's like, you don't get that benefit. Like with the recurring work, I, a lot of times the cam I can just use over again. The next time the job comes in, there's usually little changes, but they're, I can get like a template that gets me 90% of the, of where I need to be on starting on the programming when they send me a new part, um, for the recurring work. But, uh, yeah, but the prototyping stuff's always like so different, even, you know, same client just day to day, the works, the parts are so different that it, it does take up a lot of time on the, before you start running a part, just on the programming and quoting and that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I don't know if I could handle like a hundred percent prototyping. I don't know if I could find that work like every day enough to keep my machine highly utilized. So I think the, you know, the, the trick is getting a good mix, um, and getting the right kind of clients and the right kind of work where it kind of dovetail dovetails in together. It's not conflicting too much on priority. Um, which is, it sounds easy, but it's not, but, um, it's kind of, for me, at least it's kind of coming together, I think. So that's been good. Um, so I'm starting to think about like, what next year looks like, you know, I think I mentioned it last time. Do I think about another machine? I might. Um, and what, if I do, what's it going to be? I still want a lathe, but not really for the business. That's more of a toy, some sort of turning solution to play with in here. Um, you know, I think I want CNC, but I don't, but I really want hobby. And I don't think there is like the smallest you can get is probably like the Tormach. It would be. The Sills, S-Y-I-L, they have lathes. Oh, okay. But do they have like a, like a pocket and C size machine? <laughs> uh, that's really what I want. I want a lathe that's that size, but it's not necessarily manual or right. is manual and CNC without doing like a conversion of a. Right. Uh, yeah. No, Which, actually, that, I probably. That's a good point though. There isn't really a pocket NC style lathe out there. So if anyone's listening, yeah. get on that. <laughs> You yeah. could take I mean, a nomad, turn it sideways, and <laughs> sort of turn that into a lead. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, the flip side is I, I have less and less time to play around with something like that because, like, like I said, I'm trying to fill as much of the available time with business right now. But, um, you know, at some point I'll kind of reach my saturation point and kind of be happy with where the business is going and, and start carving out some time for my own product development and just playing around. Like I kind of miss that. I get it. You know, that's, that was the other good thing about prototyping. I, I had a lot of down days where I could just do what I wanted on the Neo, but I'm uh, getting less and less of those. So, uh, yeah, I think, uh, over the last 10 days I've had one day really where I machine was free to do whatever I wanted to do with it. 
and I just cleaned it. <laughs> it's been the day doing maintenance on it. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of funny. Um, but boy, if I had two of them, hmm. <laughs> that could be fun. Yeah. So I, um, one of the things I ran, like basically what I was doing when I wasn't on the podcast last weekend was running some, uh, real small aluminum bronze parts. I was actually able to post those the client. Let me, that's probably the only work I'll ever be able to post by the client. I, mean, I can't say who it is, but <laughs> I can at least talk about the part. So it was like a small wire. It was basically a, looked like a small pulley, but it was a wire guide bushing and, um, decided to do it out of aluminum bronze. You know, I had some flexibility from the client on what material and I had some aluminum bronze around here and I thought it'd be pretty good, uh, high wear or low wear material for their application. So it looks like brass does not cut like brass, <laughs> even on the Neo. Like that was a pretty tough, uh, pretty tough material. I, I went at it with the, you know, just my standard loom tools, Datron single flutes, and it ate them up pretty fast. So uh, it was definitely uh, more like stainless steel and I switched over to my stainless tools and those work great on it. But yeah, so <laughs> I don't know if you guys ever machine that stuff, but it's, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty abrasive. <laughs> No, I haven't had an opportunity yet to uh, machine that, but I'll, I'll make sure to file that in the head for later. Yeah, it was, I think it's called 954 bearing bronze, which is actually probably one of the easier, you know, there's much tougher aluminum bronzes out there. The, it's the nickel content goes up. Because I think the stuff like Grimsmo is working with on uh, on the Saga pins is much tougher than the stuff I was playing around with, but um, much prettier too. But it, did, it does look gorgeous when you finish it right. It's like, it's a lot, it's brighter than brass. It's, it's pretty, like, I, I like the material. I'd like to do more with it. Um, I'll probably try to find one that has higher aluminum, like a little more silverish, a little less gold. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, some of the stuff I've seen. Um, was it, I think that's, was it gummy uh, on the inside and hard on the outside? Kind of like stainless where the skin's really tough, but the underneath is soft. Really weird looking material. Um, so it's hard to explain. It's like, it's not like a solid piece. It looks like they took small pieces and just, Oh, welded okay. them together. Like yeah, centered. Cent yeah, almost look centered. Um, it's actually, I'd love to see how they cast it because it's interesting looking. But it's that's tough. Like especially when you're cutting around those um, seams, it's pretty hard. Around those, uh, they kind of look like welds have been grinded off. So I have like two sets of stock that I got um, that I've had here forever. Like I actually first started machining on the Nomad. Um, I have one that was like just in that raw state, like I guess with the mill finish on it and that's just like nasty looking on it. <laughs> it's like got pretty harsh looking skin on it. And then I had, uh, McMaster's also sells some, uh, precision ground version of that, which is a lot, lot nicer finish, but it's still, you can kind of see that it's still variations in hardness as you're machining it. But, um, if you have a choice, I'm I wouldn't. it up now. Yeah. It's got twice the, uh, tensile strength of 6061 so it, it's definitely more stressful to cut than aluminum yeah if you look at the machinability it's it's right up there with stainless and the heart i think the hardness is pretty close um, but it's great material if you have like a wear surface it's like super durable um, they use a lot i think on like sliding like metal metal surfaces the slide they can rest them on this stuff that was like the one little thing i was cranking out last weekend and then uh, it was fun because I got to do it on the fourth axis. It was like the smallest thing I've ever done on the fourth axis. It was kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, the other thing I've been looking at is um, continuing my experimenting with the diamond tooling. So I've got um, PCD tooling in. I think uh, I would have talked about this last time if I had been on the show, but um, got some tooling from Zeka, Compliments of Alien Tools. Um, they kind of set me up so I could order that in the U.S., and uh been practicing or not practicing but testing out their iguana tooling works great in 6061 i can't wait to try it in 7075 it's uh i posted i think someone i can't remember if i put it on it's probably just in the story but i posted some of the test pieces that i cut with it and i have like ball in mills and flat mills so i was kind of trying to get good floor finishes with the flat mill uh, or you know facing type finishes and then uh using the ball nose mill for contours and sidewalls. I'm sorry, for contours and drafted walls. But um, 
I wish I made a taper version of that. <laughs> that's actually what I need for some of this stuff I'm doing. But that stuff's looking really promising. It lasts forever. And yeah, I can turn it pretty fast on the Neo. Like I can run those, uh, the two and three millimeter tools up above 30,000 RPM and they'll still like basically last forever. So that's probably going to be my go-to when I need like super good finishes in aluminum. Um, I tested it in mix six finally, like uh, a few days ago and it definitely worked, gave me better finishes than carbide, but it's doesn't match the 6061, but just to be expected, that's a tough material to get a good finish in. It's just kind of, you know, there's, I guess it's grainier. I don't know if the word gummier than 6061, but um, I can definitely see, like, especially on the fillets, it's still they look really, really good. I had trouble getting a good finish on those with the carbide. The facing right now, like the bigger carbide tooling that I have, the Datron tooling, still, I would say, wins. But I think I, it's just because I need more time to experiment with the with the uh, Secret tools. I don't have any large ones, so like. It's basically eight millimeter Datron four and one single flute versus a three millimeter iguana. It's not really a fair fight, even though it's a diamond tool, just because the surface, you know, SFM is so much faster, right? With the eight millimeter tool and aluminum is usually going to give it an advantage. But um, using the Zeka tool where I can't reach with the bigger tool is really like improved the surface finish down, like at the bottom of some deep, cavities where I can't run the 8 millimeter tool. That was kind of the challenge I was trying to to solve with this, and that's looking very promising. So I've got MCD testing coming up next. That's going to be uh, probably my solution for large flat surfaces. I think I'll be able to get mirror finishes there where I need them when the client needs them. So hopefully I'll have something to post a while. I had the tool, but um, it was a custom tool that Datron made for me, and it's Needs a couple more tweaks to fit correctly on the on the Neo, so I should have that back eventually. We'll be able to run some good tests with that. Should be fun. Yeah. Hey, Eddie, question for you about those toolpaths. Um, what did you uh, end up using um, to do your your finishing on the walls and that fillet? Are you using uh, steep and shallow, or have you settled on some other toolpath for that? So steep and shallow would have worked, but um, it's like. What I haven't tested yet, haven't tested on a tapered wall, on a drafted wall, uh, so only vertical walls. And I just, I basically use 2D contour. I'm sorry, uh, 3D contour for that, and also for the fillet. Um, if I was going to be, if I was looking for like one strategy to finish the flat area and the contours, I'd be using Super Shallow. Like, but right now I wanted to run like facing on the flat, just to, I still get like that's one of the best finishes I get. The eight millimeter single flute running a facing op. It's hard to beat. <laughs> um, or the 14 millimeter, either one of those Datron single flutes just gives you amazing finishes. We, you run it slow, right? 500 millimeters a minute usually and super shallow. And um, that's kind of my go-to for uh, areas where I can reach with that large tool. But gotcha. uh, yeah. And so where I can't run facing like down at the bottom, you know, like some of these parts have bosses, like all, it's like a plate with, kind of bosses rising up out of it and a lot of open you know, floor down at the bottom that I want to finish with these kind of bosses in between. It's almost like traffic cones. I got to drive between them, drive the tool between them to finish the floor. Can't use facing down there. I kind of experimenting with pocket and with um, horizontal and like not happy with either one of those for the most part, even uh, I mean, they do, it's definitely improving. No matter what tool I run, it's it's more the cam strategy that's I'm not happy with because, like pocket, if you run it super shallow, super slow, it's a beautiful finish, but it drags the tool across the floor. Even if you have lift, it's just the way it it doesn't like fully lift when it's switching between contours. I don't know if you know what I'm talking because it kind of yep you know what like I'm if about? you have like a, a square, you'll have like a square cut with uh, square turns, and then all of a sudden it'll do like a little S turn to go to the next yeah. uh, step over. Like I'm thinking it should lift, you know, I put tool lift in there, right. In the thinking it should lift before it makes that move. And no matter what I put in there, it just it stays at the cutting level and always leaves a little bit of a, a blemish there. Um, if you're doing really shallow cut really slow, it's almost imperceivable, but it's still there. Um, other than that, like pocket would be really good. would, would work perfectly for me because it kind of, it can handle pretty much any geometry that's down there. 
Um, horizontal, usually I just don't like the pattern that it leaves. It's more of an aesthetic thing. The finish is great. Like if it was more of just around the RA, I'm probably horizontal doing what I need to do. But I don't like the, <laughs> I don't like the aesthetics of the pattern. Like it's kind of weird, but um, if I turn on like kind morph, of like a scallop strategy, right? Yeah, you can turn on morph on that, and actually does look kind of interesting. Um, depending on, but it's geomet it's dependent on the geometry of the part. Like, but it's going to look interesting or just odd and random. So, um, actually, I think you can use. I think you can do that same thing with pocket. I should try that. I don't know if it would get rid of that lifting. I, I haven't tried it actually. Um, yeah, so that's been kind of fun. So I, I love like just nerding out on surface finishes and starting to get into like more exotic tools now that I have the spindle and the power to, to like actually run those tools correctly and the rigidity, right, to run them. So uh, I have a lot more learning to do. I've been talking to um, Josh over at Nicholas Hackle Watch. He's been giving me a lot of good tips and other tools to potentially try to get a hold of. Uh, yeah, I think the I may never get where I want to get on mix six just because that materials you know just not conducive to really good surface finishes except for facing right on the top of it but um, as soon as you start cutting into the bulk material it's kind of a it's more of a matte finish no matter what you do but um you see the one place like the fillet on it i have a small fillet on one of these parts and that i can get to shine pretty well but the rest of it's like no matter what tool i use it's not as good as sixty sixty one. So just fine. I think for my customers, my customers are more concerned about the surface roughness than the actual like shininess. You know, of course they're kind of correlated, but um, so they've been happy with what I've done so far. They haven't, they haven't actually seen the diamond test pieces. I, I'll do some more of those and send them, you know, once I'm done experimenting, I think I have like a good formula for all the ops. I'll send them a test piece and see what they think. But I think we're on the right path for, for uh, good finishes in mix six. Uh, no, I'm, I, I recently bought that, uh, PCD coated wiper insert for the yeah. Mitsubishi. Um, that it cuts great. It's just not a mirror. It's more of like, I guess the best way to explain it is like a matte finish. And I think a lot of yeah. people on Instagram kind of warned me about that, but it does look nice though. Like when you shine a light over it, the rainbow like is really prominent. It's just yeah. not, it's just not a mirror. But honestly though, everyone complained about the wheels being too, mirror-like because it was really hard to keep clean like they would touch with their hands and it'd be dirty and stuff so uh, we yeah. ended up taking the cutters out and putting the wiper in just by itself and uh, customers like that more because it's not so much upkeep to keep the wheels clean um, yeah, but it still has that that shine so shame on me for trying to get a mirror finish uh, yeah <laughs> so minor saying is like pcd will give you outstanding finish um, but it's matte but actually most people like you said it's more of a silver map but that's what most people want right um yeah and you know that it's like a really low surface roughness you see those rainbows the diffraction pattern yeah um you gotta go my understanding is you, gotta, you really gotta go to mcd to get the true mirrors and those finishes are not durable like they're good until you touch them or you know they don't hold up well in the environment so they're really for specialty purposes like if you're doing something optical or or you have some maybe some way to protect it but um but they sure look cool <laughs> <laughs> Chris, yeah, those wheels are they going to stay in a raw aluminum state, or are they going to get anodized or something? Uh, so it, it depends. Some most of them will get clear, hard anodized to for, to protect them. Some of them might get custom depending on the customer order. I um, so you guys don't powder coat them. No, we don't, we don't powder. Most of the people don't want to powder coat it because gotcha. they want it anodized, um, if anything. Yeah, and. This is like a new product for us as well, and people seem to just, they like the machine look so far, so we've just been clear anodizing them. Um, definitely selling them faster than we can make them, unfortunately, <laughs> but uh, it's a good problem to have right now. If they wanted that powder-coated look, they can just uh, plasti-dip them. Yeah, or do something else of such grotesque nature, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, nobody wants, powder-coating is like, the the crummy stuff right on a motorcycle like it's just the the what it comes out of the factory on the engine to make sure it doesn't scratch any stuff but most people they want you know they they like the machining marks even though i i hate them they like seeing all that stuff and and, and whatnot so um definitely a, a good lesson for me that what i want isn't what the people want so what i want doesn't matter <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm trying to think what else has been going on. Um, so I guess this week's is, is the Autodesk Manufacturing Summit. But actually, I don't know. I, I know one session I think I can make. The rest I'm going to be working pretty busy this week. But uh, hopefully you guys are... I mean, your definition of work is a little different, right? Can't you just keep this open, put it right up next to your Neo <laughs> and uh, plug in headphones? Nah, I couldn't. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I could. I got to pay attention to what's going on right now. Yeah, with this work. But... Uh, I gotta be careful about getting distracted in there, like when I'm proofing cam and stuff. Oh, Eddie, I've got a question for you regarding um, the Neo. Um, how have you uh, found like regular tooling to work in the Neo? Like, I've got this conception of like if I run a 16th inch ball nose end mill on my Nomad, that I can only push it so hard. Have you found that you can push those same tools harder on the Neo just because like your run out is so low, it's got so much more rigidity and you can get better surface footage with the higher speed spindle? For the most part, I run Daytron tooling. Um, I do run some Harvey. Are you talking about like Daytron versus any generic tool? or? Yeah, I'm uh, just curious like whether or not um, the Neo does confer certain advantages even with sort of generic tooling. Yeah, I think the key is, you know, the benefit on the Neo is at the higher, you know, it comes because of the higher RPM spindle. Um, the trade-off on that on tooling, depending on size, you got to be careful to make sure it's balanced, right? Um, for, you know, 40K RPM or um, otherwise you're kind of limited. If you just like grab a generic, say, eBay quarter-inch tool, if it's, it's probably not balanced to, that, to run at those speeds, you're going to be limited to like 25K and then you're kind of, you know, you'll get some advantage over something like the Nomad because of the rigidity and everything, but you're not really getting the full benefit. So that's the main reason I kind of, I mean, plus the Daytron tooling works amazing well, and the speeds and feeds are like very well uh, covered in their guide for the Neo, right? So it's super easy to get up, get good tool pass right away and get cuts. But um, I do run, that being said, I do run like smaller, like tooling under three millimeter where the balance isn't really so critical, even if it's, not balanced. You can still run it pretty fast. Um, I run. I'm trying to think. Of the, so when I was doing those um, sewing guides, like I kept pushing the speed up on the three millimeter ball tool that I was using to finish. So I, I think I started like the speeds and feeds recommended by Natron, and then I kept pushing. I ended up like almost six meters per minute speed on that. <laughs> by the time I was done, I think I started at three. You know, basically three thousand millimeters a minute. Um, it was a super light cut; it was just finishing cut, right? But I really wanted a good surface finish, and uh, I kept basically pushing it up. I was going to stop once I started seeing the finish degrade or the tool wear, and I didn't run into either problem. So I probably could have gone faster. Uh, the only thing, the only accommodation I made was I turned up the MQL a little bit as I was bumping up the this, the feet. So and that I think I was running that tool at. I stuck with their RPM recommendation. I want to say it was like 36K. It's a single flute, so it's not exactly. Most of the time when I'm using a ball nose mill on the Neo, I'm using a two flute, uh, the Dayton two flute, but uh, just kind of started using the single flutes on that job. And you can go really fast with them. I haven't tried going like going crazy with the two flute, so it might work the same. But um, yeah, so I would say experiment with the feed right like probably stick with their for the most part with their rpm guides this is just on finishing like on roughing uh, <laughs> i wouldn't push it i mean daytron's already pretty aggressive with their published speeds and feeds for roughing um you'll probably get into trouble if you try to go to 110 percent of that but um yeah but for finishing you know depending on the geometry and the material and the tool you can probably there's probably room to go faster because uh, I think it's just, you know, I don't know what most people finish at. A lot of times I'm removing uh, 0.5 millimeters of material. As I said, 0 0.05, sorry, 0 0.05 millimeters of material on my finishing pass. So it's basically nothing. So the faster I go, the better, really, to keep the heat out of the tool. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I haven't, you know, I found that, especially with finishing, you know, you can you can cheat <laughs> and still get a very good finish. So uh, I don't know what it's doing for accuracy. Like if it, if it was a high tolerance 
finish also or like high dimensional tolerance, I probably would stick with the normal speeds and feeds. But um, yeah, that's my, I say that, you know, it's definitely something you can experiment with. Um, just be careful. Like, uh, so the other thing, this might I'd be interesting uh, to see what happens. Well, I'm assuming you're asking because you, you might be running, getting your hands on Neo or something someday in your garage, right? <laughs> Uh, well, I was just, so I'm, I'm looking at some of the speeds and feeds you have and I'm like, for, for such a small piece of carbide, it is pushing super duper hard more than I would think like carbide could handle. And so I'm just curious, like what, is it magic in the tooling or is, is there some magic that the machine itself can confer to regular tooling? So for Daytron tooling, like the single flute. It's highly polished, you know, in aluminum, that's a bit of an advantage. The downside is ultimately that once it wears, it's probably behaving like a regular tool. Um, but why it's, it's kind of in the newer state, it's super sharp. Cuts right through the material like really, really well. That combined with the MQL, the ethanol MQL, which really pushes a pretty hard temperature drop on the cutting surface. Uh, probably better than you get with traditional coolant because there's some, you know, chemistry and evaporation involved there. And thermodynamics, um, that's probably also leading to the you know those results working where you wouldn't think they would traditionally work. Um, yeah, I don't know. We need to get Marvin back on the show and ask him because he would know. <laughs> yeah. Speaking right. of Marvin, uh, just a shout out to the uh, the four K CNC porn that he put out. In his <laughs> oh weekend. yeah, isn't that great? Those were some beautiful cuts on the Kern. Yeah, and uh, I'm not sure my monitor is. I mean, it looks awesome on a monitor, but I'm not sure I'm getting like the full 4K. Probably am. That's a pretty good monitor, but yeah, that's some good stuff. I'd like to see more of it. So he was asking, you know, should I do more? Was it worth it? <laughs> I gave him my thumbs up. Hopefully other people did too. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Great machine, great and, uh, video. He was also great machinist. Uh, overcoming the, the window issue by just running with the door open. So uh, maybe you should uh, run without the window on the, the Neo. <laughs> really want to get that shot. I think what most of the Daytron guys are doing, they, they put the camera inside the machine, which is what I really need to do. So that takes care of that problem. So you get good housing, either get a GoPro or one of my older iPhones. This still has a decent camera that, you know, mm. if it ends up getting killed in there, I don't really care. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I just need to get a good, you know, housing that can, that can be replaced. That's, that should be pretty easy to do. Or you could make your own housing because you've got the ultimate prototyping machine. Yeah, I just I gotta figure out like what's the right clear material. Like ideally, it'd be like some strong gorilla glass that probably stand up pretty long to to being hammered with the chip stream, but, but it has to be replaceable. I think you would have to go with glass because any like polycarbonate acrylic, it's it'll the same thing will happen just like to what's happening with your door it's going to start just yeah. slowly hazing over from yeah. micro scratches yeah the so i have like some gopro cases that that front lens is removable and it's glass like i could maybe design something around just that like a different housing but screw that into it yeah, yeah. it's kind of expensive i've got a, a gopro case that i stick on my pocket nc sometimes and it's it's 20 bucks it's machined aluminum and you can thread a 52 millimeter filter on it so I just have oh, a couple yeah, of UV filters that I throw on there. Yeah, that's and, uh, that's enough to protect the, the GoPro's own lens. Yeah. Yeah, and I want something that's like kind of battery powered. That's not so I'm not running any kind of I don't want to run like any kind of electrical stuff into that alcohol. Yeah. And that sounds like a GoPro <laughs> is kind of nice because Yeah. Self contained. Um, yeah. Yeah. So hopefully uh, that's probably what I'll do. I, I'll just I have like an old Noga like knockoff Noga arm that I think would be a pretty good start to getting a safe mount in there. The, like my first temptation is mount on the table. Cause that makes sense. But boy, there's so much acceleration on that table. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's going to have to be pretty, pretty sturdy uh, set up there. So a Noga arm actually might work pretty good or some sort of like something that can be locked down really tight, but needs to be really adjustable. Right? Uh, I think like a really short Noga arm, the long or shorter, moment arm might work yeah we'll oh, see the other bit of advice is uh if you're gonna put a camera inside the enclosure you might want to go with that filter route because then you can also put a macro filter on your camera oh, wow. um, because at those short distances a gopro has trouble um focusing 
Yeah. You got to be at like at least like 10 inches to a foot away. Otherwise you're going to notice some significant fuzziness on the GoPro image. Yeah, that's true. I, I actually ran into that problem and I had it, I had it mounted inside my uh, pocket and see for a while. I'm just, there was the minimal focal range was well, infinite right on that, but it was too close to really get clear video. So, uh, yeah, that's a good idea. So I'll probably experiment with that eventually. And then, I mean, I'd like that cause I would like to be able to just have the camera running all the time when I'm machining right now. I have to kind of, you know, I'm holding the camera, so I'm either operating a machine or shooting footage or doing something else. And it's like, I'd rather just have a camera recording the whole thing while I'm not being distracted by filming right? when I'm trying to run this very fast machine and get itself into trouble very quickly. Um, so yeah, that would be a good solution. I think just get it, get a camera in there that I can remotely control, you know, turn on, turn off and then just let it do its thing. As long as it has lots of storage. So I don't have to worry about that till the job's done. Yeah. Cool. That's probably something I put on my uh, project list. Can't wait to see it. Yeah. yeah. I just remembered what that spray was. It's called Plexus. Plexus. And I, I sent you the link, but basically it like covers the pores of plastic services with like a micro thin layer and it polishes again and makes it clear. Very nice. Yeah. I'll try that out. I'm got uh, plenty of real estate there. I can test it like in an area. If it does make things worse, I'm fine. Yeah. So. That, that bottle has lasted me since 2002. Very nice. Does it take a Very, lot of elbow no, grease or is it pretty quick? Just just a, just a light spray will cover a big area. And then you just a little bit of wiping and you're done? Yeah, microfiber. Make sure the tile's clean and just you just yeah. kind of polish it a little bit with your hand and it just dries off. And it's oh, my, okay. we, we do this after every round and our lenses are like brand new. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, it's funny because um, like before I even had the Neo fully uncrated, like before it ever even got commissioned i'd scratch the top like the outside part of that <laughs> so i was already like i remember being all pissed off and worried about that now that's like nothing <laughs> compared to the rest of it <laughs> it's like probably the cleanest spot on the glass but uh yeah it's funny if i'd known what i know now i wouldn't have sweated it <laughs> but yeah don't drag like heavy stuff across uh polycarbonate <laughs> lesson learned dirty a dirty box you know with like grid on the bottom of it <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's not smart. Uh, anyway, where are we at? Are we? Uh, I have not been paying attention to the time. We've uh, oh, had yeah. an hour for sure. Yeah, well, I'm ready to wrap it up. Do we cover everything you guys want to talk about? Yeah, if we keep talking, we're not going to have anything to talk about. Uh, next <laughs> week. All right. Well, I'm going to uh, say good night, guys. Yeah, it's been great. Have a good one, everyone. You too. Take care.